Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. But he's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. I'm Mark Kenny, host of the Democracy Sausage podcast, and I'm glad to say this event is being recorded for that purpose, and who knows, that may be how you're listening to it right now. We meet on Ngunnawal and Ngambri land, the sovereignty of which was never ceded. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples present or listening today. My guest tonight, of course, is Professor Peter Van Onselen, academic, journalist, broadcaster and author, whose most recent book in another collaboration with fellow academic Wayne Errington is titled How Good Is Scott Morrison?, Peter, welcome back to ANU. I've certainly seen you here before. Um, I always feel like that title needs to clarify that there's a question mark after it. Indeed, and that was going to be my <laughs> first question. You want you? I, I was just about to say that you would like to emphasize the question mark because there's been a little bit of uh, commentary on the, uh, let's call it social media, which we know from today is uh, influenced by the devil. Um, but there's been some uh, moderately, I guess, um, should we call it hostile commentary about the title with people sort of not really getting the joke? Yeah, it, it's misunderstood. Maybe they don't see the question mark sometimes or it gets tweeted without the question mark. It's probably not always wise to start talking uh, about the book by discussing what happened before the book went to press um, with the publisher when uh, one of the people from the publishing house is right there in the front of the audience. But it was really interesting actually because hindsight's an easy thing. But uh, I was pushing originally for a title that was The Trials of Scott Morrison uh, and, you know, a sort of a more brooding picture rather than that ridiculous one that was a stage managed one that he agreed to, I believe, when he became treasurer where he's sort of looking off into the yonder as it is on the beach, you know, dressed semi-formally with no shoes on. Uh, but the publishers thought that the trial of the trials of Scott Morrison sounded too pejorative. So they wanted the question mark of how good is Scott Morrison. Obviously, it's a wordplay on him constantly saying how good is Australia, how good are, you know, bacon and eggs, you name it. Uh, and so we, we went in that direction. Uh, with hindsight, obviously, with what he's going through over the last few months in particular, the trials of Scott Morrison would have taken on a new meaning. I didn't mean it pejoratively. I meant it as a sort of an idea around the pandemic, the bushfires, and it would have then obviously been equally as applicable um, with a lot of the issues that he's faced in more recent months to that. But, uh, yes, there are people that are assuming that I'm putting an exclamation mark uh, with Wayne rather than a question mark at the end of the book. And if you if you read it, you'll you'll certainly, I hope, realise that that's not what we're doing. It doesn't really say much for the analytical powers of some people, though, when you think about it. I mean, uh, <laughs> the idea that you would – I mean, that, that might be what the Liberal Party might put out as a pamphlet, but um, <laughs> I, I doubt that a political journalist would uh, – even one who was perhaps friendly to the coalition, I'm not certainly not suggesting that you are like that, but um, uh, it's uh, – it's not the sort of thing I would imagine that 
ordinarily I would, uh, you know, jump to, and it just shows there's a fair amount of cynicism in the electorate. And it, it goes to what the book is actually about because there are aspects, depending on the perspective you start with, where he's done very well, but I would sort of suggest that he's done very well politically or he's um, managed the situation well uh, that might reflect well on him in between examples where he certainly hasn't as well, which we go through in the book. Uh, Laurie Oakes was good enough to endorse it on the front cover, but uh, I can't remember his exact wording right now, but he basically said that we talked about his virtues and vices. And when he gave us back the quote, um, Wayne uh, not meaning to be uncharitable to Laurie Oaks, Wayne just said, I'm not too sure what the virtues were that we dwelt on in the book. <laughs> um, but obviously that was Laurie's eternal penchant for, for being balanced. Uh, Indeed, the great Laurie Oaks. Well, congratulations on getting this book out so quickly because uh, here we are really in the PM's first term. I mean, I know he was um, elevated to the prime ministership before the 2019 election, but you know that's the first election he faces. Of course, he comes out proclaiming the miracle of his of his win, uh, and uh, before he's got to the next election, which you know be his first chance at re-election. Really, um, you have this book out. The reason I'm going through this preamble is because I'm wondering: was the haste with which you've done it uh, predicated on? the fairly widespread suggestion that an election in late 2021 was a likelihood? Yeah, we did assume that he would go late this year uh, when, when we were writing it and hence wanted to get it out as soon as possible in that context. But we'd been playing around would probably be the way to do it with some of the underpinnings uh, around not just Scott Morrison but where the Liberal Party were at uh, and then decided not to publish in the lead-up to the last election. Uh, we'd done books in the lead-up to or in the aftermath or the lead-up to 2016, 2013 and obviously Howard much earlier than that. But we held back and then rejigged and inserted Scott Morrison into it. So that probably sounds like it's an incredibly messy book, but it's not. Uh, I, I, I promise you it's not. But it, it became a case of trying to analyse, in particular we started with the bushfires. You know, we sort of thought, if you like, that was where this was really going to take off because that of itself seemed like a huge challenge for Scott Morrison. Uh, We wanted to obviously backfill the election and there'd been a fair bit already written about that from those election books that we were able to draw on. But then the pandemic became what we thought, and and it is in the book, would be the focal point of where he sat and how he would come out the other side of it. And so the aim was not so much to make it a pre-2021 election book for that election. It was more to try to evaluate what he had done right and what he had done wrong uh, throughout particularly the pandemic and the bushfires. So you start off the book with, and when I say start off, I mean I think this is literally almost the first line, uh, where you're talking about what makes great leaders and you say that history normally kind of uh, attaches that term great leader to someone who's faced a crisis and, and ideally has prevailed in, in that crisis, whether it be FDR or Winston Churchill, these kinds of leaders. Um, now, Scott Morrison's had foist upon him the pandemic, as have other world leaders, of course, uh, the pandemic, and we're in the midst of it. We don't know how it sort of tumbles out in the end. Uh, but certainly the first year of that, 2020, has been good for Scott Morrison in the political sense. Yeah, and, and notwithstanding a lot of the issues that he's faced in recent months post-pandemic, including with the vaccine rollout, but also with all the gender issues that he's faced as well, his satisfaction rating, you know, just yesterday, I think on Newspoll was at 59%, which some, somewhat seems surprising in the context of the troubles that he's faced. In other respects, not so much. And we go into that without realising where that was going to go when we send it off to the printers. Uh, I just I find that period, particularly the pandemic, and also analysing his performance in the pandemic in the context of his so, such poor performance during the bushfires, really interesting. You know, this idea that he was battle-hardened by those. And Scott Morrison, Prime Minister, we try, and this is something that there's not a lot of talk about at the moment, we try to analyse him in the context of the here and now, but also if he misses big reform opportunities, what's he going to look like in 10 or more years' time? Uh, And that's where we draw quite early on in the book, I think, comparisons to Malcolm Fraser. You know, people often forget that Malcolm Fraser, from a Liberal Party perspective, Malcolm Fraser was a hero 
for vanquishing Gough Whitlam in 75 the way that he did, even more so for then uh, doing the sequel in 77 with a very similar margin. But then by the time he left office and then certainly in the aftermath of all those microeconomic reforms during the Hawke-Keating era and the transformation of the Liberal Party, he became someone who was initially seen as a do-nothing prime minister before then being seen by Liberals as, as a you know, if you like, a traitor to the cause ideologically. And the risk for Scott Morrison where we try to draw that comparison is that you can be a hero for getting within your own party in particular for getting through the pandemic, for winning the unwinnable election against Bill Shorten, but over time, just like happened to Malcolm Fraser, whose electoral successes were that much bigger than that uh, in, in, a, in a way with how he- heavily he won in 75 and again in 77, once the passage of time happened, because he did little, he, which is not to suggest he did nothing, but because he did little, particularly in the economic reform space, which is where the Liberal Party went, he then was more critical criticised by his side of politics subsequently. And we sort of look at Scott Morrison through this prism of, well, where might the Liberal Party go going forward once we're out of the here and now analysis that, oh, great, he won an election nobody expected, that's a tick right away. And we we, we discuss this idea of, well, will the Liberal Party, for example, be forced to embrace climate change in a way that it hasn't done uh, in more recent times? And if that happens, how does he look um, for having created roadblocks to that? If the Liberal Party does go back to economic reforming credentials like it had during the sort of Howard years in particular in opposition as well as early government, well, what does Morrison look like for not pursuing that when he had the opportunity post-winning a big election with all the popularity that the pandemic followed? And indeed, depending on how Australia goes post the pandemic, if we miss important opportunities to reshape what the role of government should or shouldn't be, how does he look then to the broader community as opposed to the ideological side of politics that he derives from if he misses the chance to reshape the role of government and how we should operate in the wake of expectation changes in the community post-pandemic. So we try to do both. Yeah, and it's a difficult thing to do contemporaneously, of course, because you don't know how th- how things pan out. What we do know is that uh, there is a, as, as you made the point, there's there's a broad level of satisfaction with the government. We see that turned up in the polls. He still has high satisfaction ratings, high approval ratings. As Prime Minister, I'm, I'm interested in a couple of elements of, of what you just said. One is the uh, let's just stick for a moment with the kind of the creation of the of the of, of the Morrison product as we understand mm. it now, which is really the formed in that crucible of of the failure over the bushfires and then the rapid onset of the pandemic. Like in political terms, this crisis came along at a time when the Prime Minister had just proved himself not up to the mark of national leadership. You know, I don't hold a hose, mate, and being absent and sort of not, you know, kind of obscuring the fact that he'd left the country and then coming back and all of the kind of uh, inadequate positioning. It took him a while to go down to the fire grounds and when he did it was a bit of a disaster and and he didn't, didn't, you know, it was certainly not exuding leadership. But within a relatively short period of time, we have an, an international sort of crisis on our hands and so right at the time when the PM's needing to rebuild his leadership, the country is needing a leader, needing mm. someone to step up, to coordinate the states, to, 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 to take decisions in an emergency. And it's almost like, to me at the time, I was feeling like he'd glimpsed his, port- his political mortality so recently that he had to succeed to some extent with the pandemic. Yeah, I should say, like, my favourite two chapters in the book are the first two on the pandemic uh, because we, we from people that we've spoken to for the book, we really try to take the reader inside just how quickly the decision-making process was going, just how chaotic it was at times, just how dire and concerning some of the predictions were about where this virus and, and pandemic might go. And you, you, you really are on a roller coaster ride going through that and you've just finished the bushfire chapters to see just how badly he handled that and how obstinate he was about a lot of elements of it. So then you sort of come into those chapters thinking, wow, you know, this guy is completely not fit for purpose and now suddenly he's being handed the ultimate of challenges. And we we make the point, we try to create the caveat of accepting that, look, like it or not, it would be uncharitable not to give him some due credit for the handling of the pandemic. And then we have the big but that follows 
which is that the state premiers particularly dragged him over the line in those early stages of the pandemic doing what was needed to be done with shutdowns and lockdowns and all the things that there were some ideological opposition from, not just to Scott by Scott Morrison, but within the cabinet as well. And we get a little bit in the room there for that. And so, you know, you see that unfolding in those early chapters. And and it's a reminder to what you remember seeing with some of that exchange publicly, because it felt like he was not in control. And it felt like this was an extension early on of his mismanagement of the bushfires, but it was going to be that much more serious other than for those obviously immersed in the middle of the bushfires. And so that was, and then all of a sudden that shifted, but, you know, other than having to say, well, he did ultimately preside over that as prime minister, the the simple reality is, is that we discovered that federalism is alive and well Mm. through the pandemic. You know, we'd all sort of assumed that the Commonwealth was slowly eroding states' rights and they have been from a fiscal perspective, but all of a sudden the pandemic saw state premiers with more power than we ever probably remembered that they had constitutionally. And they saved Scott Morrison from himself in many respects. And this man who was highly stubborn, and and I'm, I'm sure we can talk about this, but his stubbornness butting up against his pragmatism, the reason we can't conclude that he's a pragmatist is because his stubbornness gets in the road of pragmatism too often to conclude that he's a pragmatist. But he's certainly not an ideologue, even though he loves the culture wars, much more than Howard ever did, I would argue, even though Howard loved them too. So it, he, he becomes a more interesting study the more you try to understand him. I remember early on this idea, the idea of doing a book on Scott Morrison would have sent me to sleep. Um, and I really just wouldn't have seen what that book was. And Wayne and I had done Howard, done Abbott, found a way to do Abbott, uh, did Turnbull and, and you know, and, and we wanted to then do Scott Morrison and the plan was always to kind of tell the story when it ended and we thought that might be the election but then we sort of held off because he won it and, and we decided to come in before he lost. We were going to originally wait till whenever he did lose and then do it. Um, and he's he's become a more interesting study to me not because I think he's interesting, but because I think what makes him tick in the context of the times that he's been leading and the challenges that he's faced are interesting, you know, and and I ended up enjoying writing it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, and even Wayne enjoyed writing it. Wayne doesn't enjoy writing with me even though he continues to do it most of the time. But even Wayne enjoyed writing it by the end of the book um, and he was, you know, without question hostile about writing a book uh, about Scott Morrison from the get-go. It was me kind of pushing him. Uh, but in the end... It, How do you the, go with that collaboration process? Is we it, write over the top of each other. Right. So we've, we we shared our, our history is we shared a PhD office together at UWA when we, we, we were both doing postgrad. Uh, and so we've been friends for a long time as well as colleagues and we both got started in academia together writing um, academic journal articles together so that we kind of had the confidence to submit them and deal with the you know, questions from reviewers. And so then our first book was the biography on John Howard, which we took a while to write, but it was our first book. So him and I write over the top of each other. We don't use track changes. Uh, we literally, often we change the same words back and forth and then eventually have a conversation about who cares more if we disagree on something, but we don't designate chapters or, or anything like that. It is, that, that, that's hopefully that's why you can't tell the difference from chapter to chapter. In this book, uh, he, Wayne, did a lot more of the analysis on uh, on Scott Morrison's Pentecostalism and his faith than than I did because he's got a better, I guess, intellectual understanding about some of those issues than than I do. So he did the lion's share of that, uh, and I did the lion's share of the pandemic chapters, which now suddenly made me sound egotistical by saying they were my favourite. I just realised, but. Um, <laughs> And oh, you've he, got to stick with your own work. <laughs> but we do we, we do write over the top of each other, no question. Yeah, that's really interesting. Just Let's just go back to that pandemic stuff for a moment though too because you, you make a very good point about um, the PM getting some things right uh, but also being rescued by the states in a range of ways as well. The thing, the single thing he did right probably, um, you know, that really changed things apart from closing the border on I think it was March 15 mm. was the National Cabinet because it – it, it dialed down the politics. I mean, as you say, we saw the Federation work in ways we didn't, we'd forgotten it could work in or, or never knew it could work in. Um, but there's no doubt that the National Cabinet, the idea of operating like that, of it having a sort of a single subject agenda, um, 
and of it being very collaborative and cooperative uh, really did alter the atmospherics of politics and the and the atmospherics of the relationship between Canberra and the states. It, it did change things dramatically. I, I would also remember, though, very early on, it became more collaborative before the, there were further road bumps. But very early on, it was interesting because I think he originally conceived of and thought of the National Cabinet as removing the bureaucrats, which he wanted to do, and, and have leaders be able to directly talk to each other in the room without all the process that COAG would normally have. Mm-hmm. But I think he also thought, as Prime Minister, he would therefore be able to direct traffic substantially and then call the presser afterwards and deliver the news and, if you like, take the lead hand almost from a PR perspective where he would be able to run roughshod to some extent over the premiers. Whereas in the early stages, if you remember, um, and obviously we go through this in the book, the premiers uh, or their conduits were leaking into the media things before they even got to National Cabinet. And Scott Morrison often found that his press conferences, he was getting caught um, responding to what had already been leaked before he even walked into the room so the premiers couldn't get outflanked by their prime minister. And so, you know, but but then he did ultimately handle it better than I would have perhaps thought he would. He didn't become as stubborn about some of those rollings that he incurred uh, on the way through. He started to increasingly over time accept the reality of it, that he gets to be prime minister, but he doesn't get to dominate national cabinet the way any prime minister usually gets to dominate cabinet. It's a different process. Then, of course, he had to deal with, and this has been very little discussed publicly, but we talk about it in the book. Then he had to deal with the egos in his own cabinet who started to feel like they'd become backbenchers almost because, you know, you want to become a cabinet minister so you've got a seat at the table, but all of a sudden cabinet ministers, other than his real inner sanctum, who were prepping him for national cabinet, cabinet ministers suddenly were not part of national cabinet and they felt like outsiders when they'd worked their whole careers to be insiders in cabinet. So then he had to massage that situation and, as well. And that wasn't all that different from the GFC because you remember mm. the group of four that uh, yep. that was Rudd, Swan, Tanner and, and Gillard? Yep. And they essentially sort of, you know, were the crisis group and the rest of the cabinet was there, – there was plenty of murmuring about – Decisions that were being taken there as well through the through the sort of dramatic days of the GFC back in and more broadly Scott Morrison we we call it his magnificent seven in the book that's a mixture of some MPs some staffers some people from outside that's his broader that almost sounds like a contradiction but that's his inner sanctum that he that's his trusted inner sanctum which is quite separate to you know your Josh Frydenbergs or once upon a time your Christian Porters and these sort of types. Who, um, even Matthias Cormann to some extent before he left, who who were part of his leadership group or his ERC or whatever it might be, mm. uh, he's got that, that. That's the trusted Morrison confidants is the the magnificent seven. But all of them lost standing because they were out of the room, um, with maybe one or two exceptions within his own staff. Whenever national cabinet met, uh, and he found himself getting outmaneuvered and outnumbered in some respects by premiers. I mean, we forget Gladys is now right on board. Uh, Gladys. Berejiklian is right on board with uh, Scott Morrison on a lot of things like, for example, avoiding border closures and and lockdowns. However, in the early stages of the pandemic, it was her and Dan Andrews that were teaming up against Scott Morrison and that was making his life difficult. And post the bushfires, we go through this in the chapters on the bushfires, the tensions between Gladys and Scott Morrison were huge during the bushfires, much more than ever came out publicly and a fair bit of it came out publicly. And so it was off the back of that that he was having to face up to her jumping in with a Labor Victorian Premier rather than her Liberal Prime Minister. And so there were huge tensions behind the scenes before it became as collaborative yeah. as it did. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and it, we saw some interesting alliances really because we saw a, an alliance build, a functioning, functional working alliance between Morrison and Dan Andrews to an extent as well that sort of came after that as well as as, as Morrison realized he needed to have these big states on board and you know I don't know uh, things as you say they'd got a bit fractious with Gladys Berejiklian hmm. but he was still talking quite a lot to Daniel Andrews. Well and that was an interesting thing as well also arcing back to the bushfires to some extent because in the bushfires Dan Andrews actually avoided sinking the boot in to Scott Morrison when yeah, he was at yeah, his weakest yeah. and then when Josh Frydenberg started attacking Dan Andrews about what was going on in Victoria as a fellow Victorian and the federal treasurer, Dan Andrews was contacting Scott Morrison directly to say, hang on, mate, you know, I didn't sink the boot into you when you were on the back foot during the bushfires. Can you rein in 
your treasurer, thanks very much, uh, who's sinking the boot into me at the moment uh, over the problems that we're having with the second wave. And there was a few others too. Weren't there? there was Hunt and there was um, Tian. You yep. know, I'm thinking of a few Victorians um, who were who were weighing into Andrews as well. Yeah, so we saw some very interesting politics uh, that emerged through that period. Let's take a very quick break. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Let's go now to, you know, go back to who Morrison is and what we think of him, what you think of him as as a leader. Um, you, you say at one stage that he's, quite bluntly, you say he's a buck passer. It's, a, it's, it's very much part of his political style. Um, and it makes me think, of course, we all know these, these, these scandals, things like the sports rorts, uh, the Ruby Princess debacle, uh, Leppington Triangle, which came out. Um, Robo debt, which uh, we know is you know ran for a long time, and of course recently the Christine Holgate mm. affair, and 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 in all of these cases he's 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 finds someone else to blame all the time. How, how much is this? Why why is it that that is sort of you can list all these things and that's transparently obvious, and yet it doesn't seem to affect his standing. Well, I th- that's a good question, uh, which I wish I knew the exact answer to, but I think. Part of it comes back to the pandemic itself. You know, I think the pandemic rescued Scott Morrison from some of these character flaws becoming defining in the wake of his election victory. Well, with sports rorts particularly, uh, it, it, the scandal kind of got truncated by this bigger exigency of the of the pandemic, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, and to some extent even the bushfires. But the difference is because he mishandled the bushfires, I think that it, we were, sports rorts was going to roll out once Parliament returned uh, until the pandemic struck. So he, he was in this extraordinary... I, 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 and and Parliament, of course, was suspended for large periods of time as well. Yeah, and, and you know, again, uh, with substantial criticism for him essentially suspending democracy and letting executive rule take over, you know, we, we, we didn't see parliaments in large parts of the world suspended or we at least saw them go virtual sooner than, than ours did versions of that. And so that was another criticism point. But it's interesting because during... The bushfires, he, you know, he he found himself in a really unique position for an Australian Prime Minister to win an election and then have the very people who just elected you turn on you so quickly uh, is unusual because people don't like to almost admit your own error in having elected somebody so recently to then turn on them for their performance. But that did happen. He plummeted in the polls. His satisfaction rating collapsed. He was mishandling the fires and people who had you know, just by virtue of the numbers, people who had voted for him so recently turned on him very quickly. And I think that all those scandals would, as well as the whole nature of him as a buck passer, would have just then run right over the top of him had it not been for the pandemic. Uh, And I think he was buck passing during the pandemic at various points in time, but it didn't matter because by then uh, anything that wasn't pandemic related, he was very effective at saying, I'm dealing with the pandemic. You know, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Put that to one side. Well, there was that, and there was also the ability to just uh, anything that anything that was questionable, that looked like it wasn't working, that was a, a you know kind of a, a an awkward moment for him, was a function of the medical expertise. He, I'm following the advice of our medical experts. That was his sort of down pat line. So it was either someone else's fault, or it was he was you know 
operating on the best available health advice. And one of the interesting- So he's got the states on one hand doing all this heavy lifting. He's got the medical advice on the other. He's really just a sort of a prime ministerial clearinghouse. <laughs> but you know what's interesting about that? And that's exactly right. And that's what- it's one of the things that I've lamented about politics more broadly is obviously you want to always listen to the expert advice, but I don't agree that whether it's medical or any other form of experts or bureaucrats for that matter, the role of politicians is to make decisions. You know, you can often find expert advice to be contradictory and that's been the case a long way through this pandemic as well as other crises. The job of politicians is to make the tough decisions uh, and sometimes that might involve going against the majority of expert advice when there is a split decision from experts. But interestingly, and this is a positive for Scott Morrison, even though uh, it wasn't intended that way when Brendan Murphy spoke to me about it, and it's in the book obviously, um, he was tasked with calling me as a journalist um, to defend, this is his words, to defend his Prime Minister. And I remember sort of making notes to myself thinking, well, I didn't really think that was the job uh, of the chief medical officer to defend the prime minister to a journalist, but go on. Uh, <laughs> and he then was, because I was being critical of of Scott Morrison's decision-making very early on in the pandemic. Now, this is him going against, well, not so much against the medical advice, but moving beyond the medical advice would be the way to put it. I think it was when it came down, it's in the book, when it came down to uh, shutting down flights with Italy, he acted in advance of the medical advice suggesting that. And as it turned out, that was an example of him getting ahead of the problem rather than simply sitting back and following the medical advice, making a decision as a politician that this was the prudent thing to do. Now, the medical advice was to shut down flights to China and he followed it. Uh, the medical advice was missing on all counts when it came to the US and we got lucky, as it turns out. But with Italy, that was actually an example where the medical advice was not saying don't shut down to Italy, but it was not saying to do it. Uh, and he decided uh, with his inner sanctum to do it um, despite the medical advice not suggesting to do it. And that's actually a positive, I believe, um, for a political leader. Sometimes you've got to make those calls. You get them right sometimes, you get them wrong sometimes. I, I worry that more – this is a more general point about politics – I worry that too often now it's becoming paint by numbers. Yeah, and there was there, I think there was a sense of that, but there was also a more conservative uh, approach coming out of the federal – uh, government than there was out of the states, which I think you know you've referred to and you refer to a lot in the book. Um, uh, in terms of that early stage of the pandemic, we remember, for example, that um, Morrison and his chief medical officer and health minister and and you know th those around them were messaging quite strongly against state border closures, against lockdowns, against mask wearing. I mean that that was uh, you know that, yep. there was quite a lot of that. There was a fair bit of kind of dog whistling going on as well about. The states, you know, kind of overreacting, uh, and yet all of these things together, uh, the aggregate of all of these things, are the success story of Australia in the pandemic. Well, you think about, for example, right at that early point uh, where we eventually led to lockdowns very quickly thereafter. You know, Scott Morrison, you'll remember on that weekend in in early March, uh, said he was going off to the footy for one last time, and he was understandably attacked for that and then he ended up pulling back from it. Well, can, can I just clarify that? Because that was March 15. That was, yep. in fact, just before. So they, they announced that they were going to have this um, this limit on crowds of no more than 500 and it was going to. this was on a Friday and it was going to come in on a Monday. Yep. And in the interim, you can go to the footy. Yep, and, and I think that was also the weekend of the I'm going to the footy and you can go to and the And that footy. was the weekend of the Grand Prix in Melbourne, which was ultimately cancelled, if I remember, because I was in Melbourne for Insiders. And Brendan Murphy was, it was a bizarre interview. He was on with Greg Hunt and they were sitting side by side being interviewed by David Spears. You know, it was like, it was literally like two Impala getting hunted by the lion. Um, and, and it was really, it was really interesting because Scott Morrison had said, I'm off to the footy uh, this weekend, one last chance to do so. Now, at a human level, I get the concept, you know, one last chance because it's not going to be happening for a long time makes sense. The criticism that we make in the book is that you need to set an example as a leader because it takes time for messages to sink into the wider population. Because if you fast forward a week or two, they had quite panicked press conferences where they were really uh, attacking Australians for going to the beach still, and we remember all those scenes. That's because there's a lag effect, and that's why a leader has to be ahead of that lag effect in a predictive way. And him saying, I'm off to the footy, was sending the wrong message, 
I believe. Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree with you, and I, I thought that at the time. I thought that just seems to me to be such a cockamamie idea uh, for the leader to be encouraging people but to can go Can I put it gather. in context, though, Mark? Because that weekend, see, Brendan, and this is not an attack on Brendan Murphy. Uh, it's it's a If anything, it's an attack on Scott Morrison. Brendan Murphy is the expert. He turned up that weekend to Insiders. We put this in the book He because oh, I was on the panel. I'm there in the green room, and he turned up at Insiders, and Phil Curry um, from the AFR stood up and thrust his hand out to shake it with Brenda Murphy and Brendan Murphy took it. And I remember sort of looking at that a little surprised, uh, but I thought, oh, well, I guess if somebody puts the hand out, you know, whatever. Then David Spears comes around the corner and, and makes a joke of, oh, I'd shake your hand, but obviously we can't. And then Brenda Murphy said, no, no, there's no problem with that. Popped his hand out and shook it. And that's when I then, okay, I, I, I'm now very curious. And we started sort of talking a little bit about it. And then you actually raised it, didn't you? I did, yeah. yeah. And, and the whole dialogue is in the book. It was quite interesting. They, we posed for a photo and I refused to be more than two metres um, from the photo. Everyone else was sort of huddled in. Um, and that, that sort of became deliberate as well. But, but the interesting thing about it was I spoke to Brendan Murphy subsequently about that. And as the medical expert, he wasn't wrong. His point was – community transmission is so low that at that point shaking hands is fine. Um, and I guess we were in a green room, we were behind the scenes, but we were still journalists. But it goes back to your original point, which is a completely valid one, which is about what is the message you're the trying optics, to send exactly. here, you know? And that's why later that You want to drive community uh, you know, anxiousness or awareness and you want to change behaviour. And later that day, Scott Morrison sort of, if you like, outlawed um, – shaking of hands uh he'd already said i'm not off to the footy but he didn't he wasn't willing to con- and this goes partly to his character about he, he subsequently went to the footy by the way did he go that weekend no he? not that weekend but no no later yeah okay. yeah, yeah four or but, five weeks later but that he he pulled out but i think it was on paul murray's show he said something along the lines of well i'm i'm pulling out um because of the the haters who misrepresented as opposed to the need to set an example uh, so, you know, things pivoted, but he did get you – know, we, we got very close to the pandemic taking off here uh, and community transmission happening. Obviously, things like the Ruby Princess didn't help, but the risk that was the problem early on, which the premiers recognised but the Prime Minister didn't, was this idea of optics and setting the example as a leader because it, it takes time. You know, it takes time before the population get on board, both in terms of just hearing about it um, much less also actually taking it on board. Speaking of taking time, do you think it also took him time to realise, uh, and perhaps this is a reflection of the Commonwealth of Federal Government being further away from the people, you know, not being involved in direct service delivery and bigger electorates and all of those things, do you think it took him some time to realise just how much people, Australians, wanted their governments to put in place protections the premiers seemed to realise this quite quickly and the, the more they did, the more parochial they were, the more popular they were. And we now know, of course, that in all four of the elections that have occurred in the period, you know, the two territory elections, WA and Queensland, the incumbent governments get re-elected. And this may well be, of course, a strong part of the popularity of the Morrison government right now, that incumbency itself is mm. is a big advantage in the crisis. But it, it's, it's like it took a, a little while for... The feds to realise that that the, you know this mechanism was working in this way. Yeah, I think there were two things at play. One was that the feds were always much more conscious of the what they saw as the economic downside to all these lockdowns. So they were they were still believing that they could, you know, if you like, try to limit some of these um, lockdowns or closures, whatever it might be. Uh, to, to stop the economy completely sagging. Also early on they were fighting to try to avoid a recession as well. We talk about that in the book. Mm. They were still clinging on to this idea that they could go through one quarter of negative economic growth but get it back and it would be that that was part snap of them, it back, the snapback was part of them thinking that they could avoid a technical recession and therefore be able to um, you know run around giving themselves pats on the back. So they were much more worried about the e- economy uh, rightly or wrongly, compared to the premiers. This was in what you might call their pre-Keynesian period. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they, they certainly moved on from that. But uh, but they were very worried about that side of it early on and and that's part of the vertical fiscal imbalance uh, realities, I guess, between a premier and a prime minister. But the other factor that was 
that they would not want to talk about now and, and even since the book was starting to be teased with some news stories the other week, I, I immediately had politicians on the phone worried about what we were saying was or wasn't said out of Cabinet based on who had told us what uh, in relation to their preparedness to discuss things like whether we go down the US slash UK model, herd immunity, let it rip, um, because there was a dialogue about that in Cabinet and nobody wants to own that dialogue now. Uh, but at the time, there was a serious dialogue within the government about that because they questioned uh, whether or not this thing could even be avoided. I've got text messages um, from cabinet ministers telling me that, you know, mate, it's unavoidable. Thousands of people are going to die. The issue is how we come out the other side of it. And it's like, wow, that's there's sort of no attempt there to prevent this becoming bigger than Ben-Hur. And so they had that Def- almost defeatist attitude about the virus. It's going to rip through the community whether we like it or not. What we need to do is make sure that we're not in economic ruin in the aftermath of that. There was that attitude quite strongly in the cabinet, but that attitude was not there amongst the premiers. The premiers had a very different view. They thought that this was something that they could contain and possibly eliminate. Uh, and that ultimately won out because fortunately in many respects for Australia, it turns out that federalism is alive and well. And then I guess fortunate, if you want to be more gracious to the feds, the Prime Minister read the room in those national cabinet meetings and and eventually somewhat reluctantly came on board. Yeah, one, one, one uh, piece of evidence about how long it took them to work it out, though, was the, the, the way he was attacking uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk because every time he attacked Anastasia Palaszczuk for keeping the border shut, her numbers went up. Um, I mean, she literally should have declared Scott Morrison on her campaign team. I mean, it was that important. You know to- what? You know what, what was so interesting about him doing that, and and he tried to do the same with WA, and then just retreated at a hundred miles an hour when he realised that you know West Australians are even more parochial than Queenslanders. Uh, and I bet it, you know, you know, abort, abort, you know, and, and he got out of there. He didn't- Luckily, he got out, and they saved two seats. <laughs> well, and. It- and he he, he he never visited during that campaign. What a, I, mean, I know this is an aside, but, I mean, honestly, putting that fellow in uh, in his early 30s, I mean, you removed any chance of even the, tr- the diehard Liberals having an excuse to vote for the Liberal leader when you put a guy in whose only career was as a, as a Liberal Party staffer. Yeah, and he's even 32, only, right? Yeah, something yeah. like that. And, and he announced on election night that he'd retired, uh, even though the voters announced it a couple of hours earlier. Um, when he lost his seat, you know, it's sort of, yeah, that, that, the, the WA one versus Queensland was interesting. I think that was also a gender thing. We talk about that in the book, even though we went to press pre, um, even the Brittany Higgins revelations, we were days ahead of that happening when we went to print. But we talk about his different handling of Mark McGowan versus Anastasia Palaszczuk as being partly a gender issue and also partly a recognition of the increased parochialism in the West. But one of the things that he was doing, which is an issue with Queensland and less an issue with WA, which is also a factor, was that his he was throwing red meat to his LMP base on Queensland borders because they had a strong view on it. He didn't need to do that to his base in WA because even though they had a view that mirrored the LNP view around borders, they knew that they had to shut up because Western Australia is as parochial as it is, whereas it was a little bit more contested in Queensland. One of the things that was really interesting in that early stage was when I heard Mark McGowan say, and I think it might have been on AM one morning, when he was asked about keeping the WA border shut and you know the damage it was doing to the economy. And he made the point, and this ended up being a point that's actually true of the Australian nation as well as being just true of, of WA. He made the point that, more money went out of WA with people travelling to the east, West Australians travelling to the east for holidays, you know, tourists and so forth, than came in. And so with the borders shut, they were actually better off than they normally <laughs> are. They actually had a had a sort of a travel surplus dividend in their state. And I think the number is for Australians that they spend overseas in an ordinary year is in the order of $55 billion. Now, most of that money has been spent back in Australia during this time. So mm. it's like even the bean counters hadn't really, I think, factored in some of the upsides to the, well, and, this emergency measures that have been put in. And it was particularly relevant to WA because, you know, you've got two million-odd West Australians over there and, you know, there's you know, a reasonably large number of them have a reasonably large amount of disposable income for travel uh, and they would usually travel abroad unless they were going to Margaret River or Broome. 
whereas all of a sudden they could only go to Margaret River or Broome uh, if they wanted to leave Perth. Uh, Perth CBD hotels were struggling and, and they still are and that's where there's an interesting fight between them and the McGowan government over things like hotel quarantine. But in terms of tourist operators down south in the southwest as well as up in the Broome area and I guess in Exmouth a little bit as well, yeah, having West Australians contained, uh, very few Australians other than West Australians travel to those spots versus international tourists simply because you know you might as well go overseas if you're living in Sydney or Canberra rather than you know, hoik it all the way over to WA. And all of that played out perfectly um, in Western Australia. I mean, my relatives uh, on my wife's side in Western Australia, they, they treat us like we're disease-riddled when we come over there now. Um, yeah, they, they, you, you, can't under, you can't overstate um, the, the support for the closed borders out of WA. You really can't. Now, um, we're going to go to some questions in a minute. So if you've got a question in mind, make your way up to the microphone and while you're doing so, I'll, I'll just sort of keep proceeding with uh, with some questions. Um, let's go to this. You mentioned before the, the gender issue that's exploded on the government this year. Um, can, I mean, j- just by way of a piece of background, I think people forget this. Probably no one in this room forgets it, but nonetheless, I, I feel like it should be said. This is the same party that has been continuously in government from the time when they named a 19-member cabinet with one woman in it, one out of 19. I mean, it's the same party that's been in power continuously ever since. And it, we, we, what we've seen playing out this year, um, as well as the details of specific alleged crimes and, 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 um, and poor behaviour, is also this massive sort of attitution, attitudinal argument about where the libs are. So I guess my question to you is, can Scott Morrison make headway in resolving this gender problem and and will he? Does he have the resolve to do so? Well, I think the first thing that he's got to do and he's tried to make the first moves towards this, but the first thing he's got to do is to get some women around his decision-making table. Uh, his whole entourage essentially are men. Uh, his inner sanctum amongst the politicians as well as amongst his staffers as well as amongst his broader um, circle, including the Magnificent Seven, they're all men. Um, and, and that showed up straight away yep. when these gender issues started coming up, didn't it? Because just the clay-footed response. Absolutely. And the senior women in on the conservative side of politics have always been, and they're changing now because they've got the opportunity to change, but the senior women in the on the conservative side of politics generally get promoted by playing ball, whereas on the Labor side, uh, and I believe this comes back to quotas. I've been advocating for quotas for forever uh, on the conservative side. Uh, the On the Labor side, women know that they're not tokenistic, even though that's always the argument used about quotas. It's the exact opposite in reality. They know that they're not tokenistic and they know that they're represented and that they know that they make it by having their voices heard, not by being quiet and waiting for a bloke to promote them. So Julie Bishop was always the exception on the Liberal side, but even then there's a lot of historical rewriting. And she was the one, of course. She, Yeah, and, but she was, I mean, she was Deputy Liberal Leader, so she was there whether the men liked it or not because she was elected into that role. But she was a lot more quiet than she is now when she was in Parliament. People often forget this, the same way that Malcolm Turnbull has found his feet on a lot of issues now that he didn't when he was Prime Minister, you know. Um, and so, you know, history often gets rewritten in the aftermath, but it's only just now that the senior Liberal women are starting to realise that they are empowered, not because Scott Morrison has empowered them, but because the public has as a result of what has happened. Now, what will be significant will be that they have those voices heard. You know, Maurice Payne, when she was younger, I, I remember her from years ago. She was, you know, the great hope of moderate liberalism out of New South Wales, but then she learned to be quiet once she got her Senate spot and worked her way up. She's now finding the voice that she had decades ago when she was an incredibly powerful voice for moderate liberalism. Now, we'll see if that continues because it has to go a lot further. The same goes for other women in the Liberal Party. But ultimately, I think that at a party level before we talk at a community level, I think they only ultimately fix it if they do some version of quotas, whatever that might be. You know, At least do it for the Senate, for example, um, and find a way to then um, over time put it into the House. For example, they, they say that their party structures because of the lack of um, clear-cut factions that Labor has which facilitate quotas, which is true. They say it's harder. Well, no doubt, but it's still achievable. 
but at the very least instantly start at the staffing ranks, for example, um, and you can work forward from there. But unless they get that right, if you don't have critical mass in the parliament, I believe you're doing women a disservice because you are trying to pick a disproportionate number of women for the front bench from a lack of critical mass on the back bench. So by definition, you're not getting the best because you haven't got enough to start with. Um, not to suggest that the blokes that are on the front bench are the best. So it's, you know, they've got to overcome a lot, I think, to get that right. And that's before we even talk about what attitudinally needs to be overcome. And that's before we get to the main game, which is what has to happen at the community level. They're, they're throwing policy galore out there. They'll do it again in the budget. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing for me will be whether they do enough to dress it up to get them through politically versus if we actually see genuine change over time. My worry is that it's going to get dressed up to get them through and to ride out the storm, if you like. That's my worry. Um, but, you know, interestingly, the funny thing about Scott Morrison is I, he has actually advocated, and we talk about this in the book, he talked about it at his press conference, um, you know, a few weeks ago when he announced a whole bunch of changes. He actually has been a quiet supporter of quotas for a long time, believe it or not. Um, and Very quiet. Very quiet. Uh, you know, very, very quiet. Um, but pre the election, um, that was his position very quietly. Um, he's now got the ability to push for that because of the times, but I don't see any evidence that he's really going there. He's trying to dress it up in other ways instead. Um, but, you know, even though... He's not somebody who I, I believe from what I can from having studied him, he's not somebody who gets on with women. He's a bloke's bloke. Uh, and that's a problem. You know, Malcolm Turnbull gets on with women. So there was a naturalness to him wanting to promote more women, which he did um, within limitations. But Scott Morrison, it's a bit more artificial. You know, so him bringing women into his inner circle is naturally harder for him because he's a guy's guy, not somebody who is a, a, a fellow who, who gets on well with women. Is it, again, I invite someone to step forward to the microphone and while you're doing so, is it a philosophical problem also though, like for the Liberal Party, it's about, you know, it's a party of individualism, it's a party that has rank and file pre-selections, doesn't have the, the, the national executive structure that the ALP has where yep. they can actually apply quotas from above. Oh, I totally so, so they So they've got all these sort of, strictures that they've put in place, yeah, which I, they say mitigates against them. Being yeah, able to do I, look, it. I think ultimately that's more excuse than impediment, but I, but it's certainly a, a, a legitimate excuse to it being harder would be the way to put it. But, for example, they've got more females in the Senate than they do in the House, and the House is where it's at, let's face it. That's where you need really need more women to institute change. But the first thing that they could do, if they're serious about quotas, at the very least the first thing they should do, numbers one and two almost never lose in Senate, half-Senate elections, which means we're talking out of the four that are guaranteed getting in across the, the Senate, they should instantly say at every election at one and two, it has to be one man, one woman. End of discussion. Now, that's a simple quota that nothing is an impediment to and then they can go and, and that is designed at the state executive level anyway. So you can certainly it's do that in each of the It's entirely easy yeah. to do and yeah. it, it's but that is like stay, step one you know, for the nine steps of the alcoholic. But you have to, un yeah, but you have to understand the problem and, and it's yeah. like it's like the party didn't understand the problem. We'll go to a question in a second. I've just got one more and it's just about the budget because you mentioned it before and and, and, and Josh Frydenberg's role, Frydenberg's role in the government I think is quite interesting and it's it may be that he is the sort of next cab off the rank, the heir apparent if uh, when Morrison ends, however that ends. I'm wondering how much do you think the budget that Frydenberg is working on now is going to be a reflection of this problem uh, that we've just been discussing, but also of the, uh, the the problems associated with the vaccine rollout, just the general political difficulty the government finds itself in now that perhaps it didn't feel like it was in in, say, January. Yeah, the, the budget's going to be really hard for Josh Frydenberg in particular. You know, he's he's sort of gotten as far as he has, but politically he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? You know, if if Scott Morrison retires how, at, at whatever point, a winner, which would be unusual, he'd be the only Prime Minister other than Menzies, don't count Barton, that doesn't count, um, to retire on his own terms. If he did that, then Josh Frydenberg's taking over as captain of the Titanic, you would assume. Uh, 
you know, if he takes over in defeat, then he's a first-term opposition leader and when's the last time that a first-term opposition leader became a prime minister? So he's in an unlucky position. He's always, understandably, got one eye, you would assume, as treasurer on what comes next for him, not just what he does in the context of the budget. And that's a huge problem for him because the budget in some ways for Prime Minister Scott Morrison is easy. You know, the Liberals can't lose on the economy. You know, if if they spend, they just say Labor would spend more. Uh, if the economy goes well, they say give us credit where the economic managers. If the economy goes badly, they say don't trust Labor because they'll make it they'll manage it even worse than we will. Uh, and you know this narrative is there post the Keating years because Labor I some to some extent blame Labor because they gave up their credentials, which were very strong economic reforming credentials because they were worried about the attacks on debt and deficit, which is ironic now. So it's easy for Scott Morrison and his team to spin their way out of trouble here, there, and everywhere and not cop the kind of criticism that Labor would for doing the same. And But that is that butts up against Josh Frydenberg's longer-term goal uh, where he doesn't want to be the treasurer that gets accused of completely destroying the budget beyond just when was necessary to do so for the pandemic. So that's the I think that's the interesting internal tension between him and Scott Morrison. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the answer to your rhetorical question is 1983, by the way. First term opposition leader becoming prime minister, Bob Hawke. Oh, but that doesn't count. <laughs> but, but hang on, but, hang on he, but he wasn't a he wasn't a first was term opposition I, leader. He did I, a month. Yeah, but I know. But I mean, as soon as as soon as you fall into opposition, yeah. who who then? Because the that, that, who was that? That was well, it was Whitlam again or Hayden. Hayden, yeah. yeah. After you, sir. Um, can, can Morrison uh, maintain his do nothing position on climate change? Good question. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I, yes, well, whether he can electorally is another matter, but I think he, I think he's moving to embrace the zero target slowly. Um, but I think he's doing it. It's all politics. I don't think he's doing it out of some passion. In fact, again, we talk about this in the book. Pentecostalism is the faith that's least likely to embrace climate change for all sorts of reasons that Wayne understands better than I do. Uh, but the short answer is that I think he's only moving in that direction as far as he believes he politically needs to. It's, there's, there's no ideology behind it and there's no reading of the science and reading of the room other than for the politics. So for Scott Morrison, climate change is simply a political problem to receive a short-term fix, which is the exact opposite of what the science tells us is needed. So I certainly wouldn't be looking to him uh, to to get Australia on track where we've been so off track for so long in the partisan debate on that subject. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- that issue of belief is, is um, I think, a, a concern. You know, where does he actually believe it? Is he actually going to do it? And will he do it fast enough? I mean, none, the answer to all those questions is probably no, unfortunately. But um, that's that's where he's moving. One of the things I'd say as someone who's been in the press gallery for a long time and now in, at least in a full-time capacity stepped out of it is that I've become aware, I mean, I wouldn't. I, I used to bristle against criticisms of the press gallery, just sort of generalisations, but I'm about to make one. Now that you're um, out of there, you're going to let rip. <laughs> well, it's not quite like that. <laughs> it's actually quite a subtle thing and it's a, it's a self-reflection as much as anything else. And, and that is that I think... Um, the thing that's really struck me is the way people consume news and understand politics, ordinary people, people who aren't doing it for a job, who aren't in what we call the political class. Um, and what, what I've observed about that and thought about in my own reporting is the extent to which it was so coloured by an understanding of the internals all the time. So it's almost like you could be too conscious of the politician's perspective mm. in dealing with a problem. So I think the answer about Morrison making this sort of shimmy across to net zero is often framed by political journalists in terms of how difficult it is to get the Liberal Party to move. And, you know, I've had Libs saying to me in in relation to this that Morrison is going to get there and he's going to get there without the rebellion that has, you know, basically cut all previous leaders off at the knees when they've got too close to it. And I think that that may well be true, but at the same time, it's too late already. I mean, the world's not even talking about net zero by 2050. They're talking about 2030 and much mm. steeper targets, as we saw. So, uh, yeah, the reflection's in there, and, and I accept my own complicity in it. Yeah, I mean, I the, the problem 
for Scott Morrison is that his view of well, the problem if you want climate change action with Scott Morrison's position, I believe, is that he would look at 2030 as a date that he's no longer going to be in politics. Now, interestingly, that could lead to him embracing the target. What does he care, right? I won't be there to be held accountable for it. But that's not helpful anyway. That, that's, that's even an example of him embracing missing the target but giving the rhetorical line as opposed to making all those changes that are necessary behind the scenes um, to, to make trying to achieve the target uh, something that, that is realistic. Yeah. Now we've got time for one quick further question. So after you, sir. Um, would you just be able to comment on how you think Scott Morrison's religious beliefs have influenced Australians' uh, perceptions of him? How his religious beliefs? Well, he's he's largely throughout most of his career hidden in plain sight his Pentecostalism. So he, you know he hasn't uh, he hasn't denied it, uh, or he hasn't you know shied away from it when asked about it other than to try to quickly move on from it. And then the only variable to that was during the 2019 election campaign where he found, we talk about this in the book, he found a neat way to get around the agreement not to campaign at Easter, um, which was to let uh, the public into his church. Now, it's an interesting situation, his Pentecostalism for the public, because he's actually the first world leader uh, who is a Pentecostal. Which is quite extraordinary, and it's he would be very proud of his own achievement, even more so because of that evangelical faith, which puts a lot of stock in personal success. Now, if you're a cynic, that's because the faith, the various churches want the money. Um, if you're not a cynic, that's because you know it's about self advancement and and attaining goals. But Scott Morrison, follow the money, I say. Yeah, I suspect so. Um, but look, Scott Morrison. Therefore, as the first ever Pentecostal to become a national leader, not of a two-bit country yet, uh, he, um, you know, he, he would therefore see that as as an incredible win, as far as he's concerned, you know, a, a one hell of a box ticked. Um, but it's also got political ramifications for him, his faith, because the the Pentecostal Church is a growing religion, even though it's only one percent of the population, and it's it's a faith which is particularly strong where those mega churches exist in some pretty key outer metro seats that are important electorally. And that's why the likes of Peter Costello and even Bob Carr were pretty big at making sure that they tried to visit those churches, notwithstanding what their faiths were or weren't. So there's all of that to consider. Uh, and then on top of on top of all of that, he knows, and, and I know that his inner sanctum know this, they know that he opens himself up through his faith, which he's just done as recently as last week when he visited the, the the conference on the Gold Coast and the reporting of it today, including my report tonight. He opens himself up to some extent to um, mocking um, in some quarters, legitimate criticisms too, of course, like, you know, about the hypocrisy and all the rest of it. I, I get that, you know, um, refugee treatment, you name it, right? But he, but the mocking is the – I'm talking politically here. The mocking is one factor. Uh, and the other factor is that Anthony Albanese does like what he did today and makes it a very legitimate point about not wanting to mesh, um, you know, church and state and also a very legitimate point about not wanting to treat it like a football team that you support. You know, God doesn't pick one side versus the other, whereas Pentecostalism is this whole I've always believed in miracles notion, which he expanded on in his speech at the Gold Coast Conference. Now, what that does, though, and I think Team Morrison knows this, that his Pentecostalism might not be mainstream religion, but for a lot of outer metro marginal seat conservative types who are faith-orientated, who are not Pentecostals, they don't like the mocking, they don't like um, these sort of attacks that he faces and they can find themselves defending him and, if you like, seeing Labor through its criticism, even if it's valid, as being anti-religious and that can be painted that way. And make no mistake, Scott Morrison's faith, we say this in the book, is probably the one thing that we're certain that, he's actually, that he actually believes in. Uh, we, it was hard to get to the bottom of it though because, of course, he wouldn't, 
He doesn't open up about this sort of stuff. We're fascinated by his adult conversion to Pentecostalism. It's quite unusual. You know, normally, if you're troubled, you convert to Pentecostalism. Uh, he essentially did it from what we can gather um, following his wife and her Pentecostalism. He was a Presbyterian, I believe, from, from memory. And so he's had an adult conversion and then genuinely sees, and he talked about this in his maiden speech, genuinely sees um, you know, the birth of his children as a miracle. Um, because of the trouble that they had having children. So, you know, he, he believes it. It's the one thing that he truly does believe in a more ideological sense versus a, a wrath of other things where he's a pragmatist other than his stubbornness. Um, but he also sees the politics of it and he knows how to play the politics of it. And the evidence of that is actually in his history, not in him now playing the politics of it. He has got through his entire political career, including as a state director on not being particularly open without hiding his Pentecostalism. And so when it comes out now, it ain't a mistake. You know, he, he, he can see the value of it, I would argue. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And it's probably um, much more uh, strongly held, for example, than his adult conversion to the Sharkies. Yeah. Well, that, that, that is the complete Shire, that. rubbish. Although I think he probably is, is now a fan, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, but, I think that's yeah. right. Mind you, I think with his uh, <laughs> talking about the uh, the evil one watching social media and, and influencing our kids, he, he missed the best line, which is the devil is in the email. Um, <laughs> that's all we've got time for, uh, Peter. It's been really terrific uh, hearing about this book. I know people will want to talk to you further and, and you'll be signing books immediately yep. after this. Uh, and so, uh, by all means, take advantage of that. Uh, would you all join me in thanking Peter Van Onselen? Thank you.